It's the Alien Conspiracy Podcast. I am your host, Agent Anderson. Come along as we examine UFO sightings, conspiracies, and all things strange. You can follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. We also have an email address, AlienConPod at ProtonMail.com. We would love to hear from you. And don't forget to check out all of our other wonderful links on Linktree in the description. This week's episode, Chapter 15 of The Flying Saucers Are Real by Donald Kehoe. All right, we were going to do a holiday episode of some kind with, uh, you know, Agent ETA was out visiting for the holidays, but it ended up we just sort of, you know, partied and did stuff instead, slept in late, that sort of thing. So we ended up actually not recording. <laughs> so this is uh, this is the delayed episode this week that we did not record, but I wanted to have something or other this week. I didn't want to have nothing at all. So I'll do a chapter of this. It's a good book. It doesn't require all the prep that you normally have to do for an episode. And it still tells a really interesting story. And it's sort of, um, there's two books that I've read on this podcast, or I haven't finished this one yet, but the flat, the report on unidentified flying objects by Rupert and this book are sort of, sort of two opposites of the same coin, right? Rupert takes a neutral or negative stance. Most of the time he does give everything a fair shake, but he tends to be more on the skeptical side of things, more or less. But this book is totally full-blown in favor of everything being real, even stuff that turns out may not be. But anyways, it still offers a really interesting perspective, and uh, we'll so we'll get to it. But before we get started, um, I'd like to remind everybody that we do have a Patreon. You can support the show. We've got three different tiers. I just modified the lowest tier to add another benefit, and that would be the after hours. I thought maybe it wasn't quite enough for everybody, and I want to have you know something for everybody. If you only got three bucks, that's fine. We still appreciate it. Every little bit helps. So with a $3 tier, you get ad-free, cutting out you know annoying ads like this one. <laughs> you get early access, and you also now get to the after hours. Sometimes when we're done recording, We'll just, you know, bullshit about whatever random stuff for a few minutes. Sometimes it's an hour or more. It just depends on, you know, what time it is, how everybody's feeling. If, you know, if people are sick, it tends to be a lot shorter, what our energy levels are that day, that sort of thing. So, you know, sometimes we have some pretty interesting conversations after the show. Sometimes it's only a few minutes. It just depends. But we got a bunch of those already on there. And at the medium tier, the $5 tier, you get bonus content. That's right. Extra case files. Sometimes we'll do um, document reads. Sometimes we'll do, I do one called strange news. I've done that a few times, more blue book files, just, you know, whatever we end up doing that week. Uh, sometimes it's relating to that week's case file, you know, extra witness accounts or something like that. Other times it's unrelated. It just depends on, on what we do that week. And at the top tier, the $10 tier, you get to help us decide what our next episode will be. So you get to vote on the upcoming topic. So for this week, for example, we are voting between three different topics. The, uh, the topics this week are strange sounds, 
another from the files of Project Blue Book, or the Pascagoula abduction. So we'll see what people are voting on. Let me check to see if anybody's actually voted on this thing yet. Uh, nope, we don't have any votes yet. So, hey, get in there and vote and see which ones you guys want to hear. Personally, I want to do strange sounds because it seems like a really, really cool topic. But maybe people want something else. So it just depends on what they vote on. So anyways, huge thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers. We really appreciate you guys helping out the show. And uh, yeah, so now let's get to it. Chapter 15. Now this, I think this chapter might be really short, so we might do a couple of chapters here. We'll see. Chapter 15. It was early in October 1949 when I finished the reversal of our space exploration plans. I spent the next two days running down a sighting report from a town in Pennsylvania. Like three or four other tips that had seemed important at first, it turned out to be a dud. When I got back home, I found Ken Purdy had been trying to reach me. I phoned him at True, and he asked me to fly up to New York the next day. I've just heard there's another magazine working on the saucer story, he told me. Who is it, I said. I don't know yet. It may be just a rumor, but we can't take a chance. We've got to get this in the January book. That night I gathered up all the material— it looked hopeless to condense it into one article, and I knew that Purdy had even more investigators' reports waiting for me in New York. Flying up the next morning, I suddenly thought of a talk I'd had with an air transport official. It was in Washington. I had just told him about the investigation. If they are spacemen, he said, they'd probably have a hard time figuring out this country by listening to our broadcasts. Imagine tuning in soap operas the Lone Ranger, and a couple of crime yarns, along with newscasts about strikes and murders in the Cold War. They might pick up some of those kid programs about rocket ships. A few days of listening to that stuff, well, it would give them one hell of a picture. Except for some hoax reports, this was the first funny suggestion I'd had about the spacemen. But now, thinking seriously about it, I realized he had an important point. It was possible that the men from another planet might have to reorient even their way of thinking to understand the Earth's ways. It would not be automatic, despite their superior technical progress. Evolution might have produced basic differences in their understanding of life. Humor, for instance, might be totally lacking in their makeup. What would they be like? I'd try to imagine how they might look without getting anywhere, Dr. H. Spencer Jones hadn't helped much with his life on other worlds. I couldn't begin to visualize beings with totally different cells, perhaps able to take terrific heat or bitter cold as merely normal weather. There were all kinds of possibilities. If they lived on Mars, for instance, perhaps they couldn't take the heavier gravity of the Earth. They might be easily subject to our diseases, especially if they had destroyed disease germs on their planet, a natural step for an advanced race. It was possible I knew that the spacemen might look grotesque to us, but I clung to a stubborn feeling that they would resemble man. That came, of course, from an inborn feeling of man's superiority over all living things. It carried over into a feeling that any thinking, intelligent being, whether on Mars or Wolf's 359's planets, should have evolved in the same form. 
I gave up trying to imagine how the spacemen might look. There was simply nothing to go on, but there were strong indications of how they thought and reacted. Certain qualities were plainly evident. Intelligence. No one could dispute that. It took a high order of mentality to construct and operate a spaceship. Courage. It would take brave men to face the hazards of space. Curiosity. Without this quality, they would never have thought to explore far distant planets. There were other qualities that seemed almost equally certain. These spacemen apparently lacked belligerence. There had been no sign of hostility through all the years. They were seemingly painstaking and extremely methodical. It was still not much of a picture, but somehow it was encouraging. Glancing down from the plane's window, I thought, How does this look to them? Our farms, our cities, the railroads there below, the highways with the speeding cars and trucks, the winding river, and far off to the right, the broad stretch of the Atlantic. What would they think of America? Manhattan came into sight as the pilot let down for the landing. An odd thought popped into my mind. How would a spaceman react if he saw a Broadway show? Not long before, I had seen South Pacific. I could still hear Ezio Pinza's magnificent voice as he sang Some Enchanted Evening. Was music a part of a spaceman's lives? Or would it be something new and strange, perhaps completely distasteful? They might live and think on a coldly intelligent level, without a touch of what we know as emotion. To them, our lives might seem meaningless and dull. We ourselves might appear grotesque in form. But in their progress, there must have been struggle, trial, and error, some feeling of triumph at success. Surely these would be emotional forces bound to reflect in the planet races. Perhaps, in spite of some differences, we would find a common bond, the bond of thinking, intelligent creatures trying to better themselves. The airliner landed and taxied in to unload. As I went down the gangway, I suddenly realized something. My last vague fear was gone. It had not been a personal fear of the visitors from space. It had been a selfish fear of the impact on my life. I realized that now. It might be a long time before they would try to make contact, but I had a conviction that when it came, it would be a peaceful mission, not an ultimatum. It could even be the means of ending wars on Earth. But I had been conditioned to this thing. I had had six months of preparation, six months to go from complete skepticism to slow, final acceptance. But what if it had been thrown at me in black headlines? Even a peaceful contact by beings from another planet would profoundly affect the world. The story in True might play an important part in that final effect. Carefully done, it could help prepare Americans for the official disclosure. But if it weren't done right, we might be opening a Pandora's box. And that's the end of Chapter 15. Alright, we're going to pause here for another commercial break. And then we're going to get started on Chapter 16 because that was a pretty short chapter. Alright, do you wear clothes? I knew you did. Well, <laughs> well we've got... Merch. That's right. Would you like the ACP logo on your clothes or perhaps one of our slogans like uh, keep it strange? Actually, that's the only one we have on a T-shirt right now. Well, check out our store at Tee Public. That's right. 
Link is in the link tree and the description. Check it out below. We have uh, different kinds of merch. You can get the logo on like a t-shirt or a sticker or a phone case or, whoa, whoa, (laughs) my dog just jumped all the way over. Okay. Um, We've got all sorts of stuff. So check it out. It's in the description and it's awesome. All right. (laughs) Let's get back to the show. All right. Chapter 16. That morning at True, we made the final decisions on how to handle the story. Using evidence of the Mantell case, the Child's Witted Report, Gorman's Mystery Light Encounter, and other authentic cases, along with the records of early sightings, we would state our main conclusion, that the flying saucers were interplanetary. In going over the massive reports, Purdy and I both realized that a few sightings did not fit the space observer pattern. Most of these reports came from the southwest states, where guided missile experiments were going on. Purdy agreed with Paul Reddell that any long-range tests would be made over the sea or unpopulated areas, with every attempt at secrecy. They might make short-range tests down there in New Mexico and Arizona, maybe over Texas, he said, but they'd never risk killing people by shooting the things all over the country. They've already set up a 3,000-mile range for the longer runs, I added. It runs from Florida into the South Atlantic, and the Navy missiles at Point Mugu are launched out over the Pacific. Any guided missiles coming down over settled areas would certainly be an accident. Besides all that, no missile on Earth can explain these major cases. Purdy was emphatic about speculating on our guided missile research. Suppose you analyze these minor cases that look like missile tests. You might accidentally give away something important, like their range and speeds. Look what the Russians did with the A-bomb, hence Washington let out. It was finally decided that we would briefly mention the guided missiles, along with the fact that the armed services had flatly denied any link with the saucers. After all, interplanetary travel is the main story, said Purdy, and the Mantell case alone proves we've been observed from spaceships even without the old records. The question of the story's impact worried both of us. Public acceptance of intelligent life on other planets would affect almost every phase of our existence. Business, defense planning, philosophy, even religion. Of course, the immediate effect was more important. Personally, I thought that most Americans could take even an official announcement without too much trouble. But I could be wrong. The only yardstick, and that's not much good, is that little men's story, said Purdy, A lot of people have got excited about it, but they seem more interested than scared. The story of the little men from Venus had been circulating for some time. In the usual version, two flying saucers had come down near our southwest border. In the spacecraft were several oddly dressed men, three feet high. All of them were dead. The cause was usually given as inability to stand our atmosphere. The Air Force was said to have hushed up the story so that the public could be educated gradually to the truth. Though it had all the earmarks of a well-thought-out hoax, many newspapers had repeated the story. It had even been broadcast as fact on several radio newscasts. But there had been no sign of public alarm. It looks as if people have come a long way since that Orson Welles scare, I said to Purdy. But there isn't any menace in this story, he objected. The crews were reported dead, so everybody got the idea that spacemen couldn't live if they landed. 
What if a spaceship should suddenly come down over a big city, say New York, low enough for millions of people to see it? It might cause a stampede, I said. Purdy snorted. It would be a miracle if it didn't, unless people had been fully prepared. If we do a straight fact piece, just giving the evidence, it will start the ball rolling. People at least will be thinking about it. Before I left for Washington, I told Purdy of my last visit to the Pentagon. I had informed Air Force press relations officials of True's intention to publish the space travel answer. There had been no attempt to dissuade me, and I had been told once again that there was no security involved, that Project Saucer had found nothing threatening the safety of America. At this time, I had also asked if Project Saucer files were now available. The right field unit, I was told, still was a classified project, both its files and its photographs secret. This had been the first week in October. When I asked if there was any other information on published cases, the answer again was negative. The April 27th report, according to press branch officials, was still an accurate statement of Air Force opinions and policies. So far as they knew, no other explanations had been found for the unidentified saucers. I'm absolutely convinced now, I told Purdy, that there's an official policy to let the thing leak out. It explains why Forrestal announced our Earth satellite vehicle program years before we could even start to build it. It also would explain those Project Saucer hints in the April report. I think we're being used as a trial balloon, Purdy said thoughtfully. We've let them know what we're doing. If they'd wanted to stop us, the Air Force could easily have done it. All they'd have to do would be call us in, give us the dope off the record, and tell us it was a patriotic duty to keep still just the way they did about uranium and atomic experiments during the war. He still did not have the name of the other magazine supposed to be working on the saucers, but it seemed a reliable tip. It later proved to be true. And from then on, we worked under high pressure. In writing the article, I used only the most authentic recent sightings. All of the cases were in the Air Force reports. When it came to the Mantell case, I stuck to published estimates of the strange object's size. A mysterious ship 250 to 300 feet in diameter was startling enough. At first, I chose Mars to illustrate our space explorations, but Mars had been associated with the Orson Welles stampede. Most discussions of the planet had a menacing note, perhaps because of its warlike name. In the end, I switched to a planet of Wolf 359, the thought of those eight light years would have a comforting effect on any nervous readers. The chance of any mass visitation would seem remote, if not impossible, but it would still put across the space travel story. As finally revised, the article, written under my byline, stated the following points as the conclusions reached by True. 1. For the past 175 years, the Earth has been under systematic close-range examination by living, intelligent observers from another planet. 2. The intensity of this observation and the frequency of the visits to the Earth's atmosphere have increased markedly during the past two years. 3. The vehicles used for this observation and for interplanetary transport by the explorers have been classed as follows. Type 1. A small, 
non-pilot-carrying disc-shaped craft equipped with some form of television or impulse transmitter. Type 2, a very large metallic disc-shaped aircraft operating on the helicopter's principle. Top Type 3, a dirigible-shaped wingless aircraft that, in the Earth's atmosphere, operates in conformance with the Prandtl theory of lift. 4. The discernible patterns of observation and exploration shown by the so-called flying disks varies in no important particular from well-developed American plans for the exploration of space, expected to come to fruition within the next 50 years. There is reason to believe, however, that some other race of thinking beings is a matter of two and a quarter centuries ahead of us. Following these points, I added a brief comment on the possibility of guided missiles, adding that the Air Force had convincingly denied this as an explanation of any sightings. As Purdy had suggested, I carefully omitted ten minor cases that I thought might be linked with guided missile research. If disclosing the facts about space travel helped to divert attention from any secret tests, so much the better. True accepts the official denial of any secret device, I stated, because the weight of the evidence, especially the worldwide sightings, does not support such a belief. Most readers, of course, would know that some guided missile experiments were going on and that True was fully aware of it but our main purpose would be achieved. The fact that the Earth had been observed by beings from another planet would be fully presented. Some readers, of course, would reject even the fact that the saucers existed. Others would cling to the idea that they were of earthly origin, but the mass of evidence would make most readers think. At the very least, it would plant one strong suggestion— that we, men and women of the Earth, are not the only intelligent species in the universe. When the article was finished, it was tried out on True's staff, then on a picked group that had not known about the investigation. One editor summed up the average opinion. It will cause a lot of discussion, but the way it's written, it shouldn't start any panic. The January issue in which the story ran was due on the stands shortly after Christmas, with my family, I had gone to Atumwa, Iowa, to spend the holidays with my mother and sister. While I was there, the story broke unexpectedly on radio networks. Frank Edwards, mutual network newscaster, led off the radio comment. He was followed by Walter Winchell, Lowell Thomas, Morgan Beatty, and most of the other radio commentators. The wire services quickly picked it up. Some papers ran front-page stories. The publicity was far more than I had expected. I phoned a reporter in Washington whose beat includes the Pentagon. The Air Force is running around in circles, he told me. They knew your story was due, but nobody thought it would raise such a fuss. I think they're scared of hysteria. They're getting a barrage of wires and telephone calls. That night, as I was packing to rush back east, he called with the latest news. They're going to deny the whole thing, he said. But I heard one press branch guy say it might not be enough. They're trying to figure some way to knock it down fast. Next day, while changing trains at Chicago, I saw the Air Force statement. The press release was dated December 27, 1949. Without mentioning true, the Air Force flatly denied having any evidence that flying saucers exist. 
After examining 375 reports, the release said Project Saucer had found that they were caused by 1. Misinterpretation of various conventional objects. 2. A mild form of mass hysteria or war nerves. 3. Individuals who fabricate such reports to perpetuate a hoax or seek publicity. Evaluation of the reports of unidentified flying objects, said the Air Force, demonstrates that they constitute no direct threat to the national security of the United States. Then came the clincher. Project Saucer, said the Air Force, had been discontinued. Now that all the reports had been explained, it was plain that the release had been hastily prepared. It completely contradicted the detailed Project Saucer report issued eight months before that had called for constant vigilance after admitting that most important cases were unsolved. Anyone familiar with the situation would see the discrepancy at once. From Washington, I flew to New York, where I found True in a turmoil. Long-distance calls were pouring in. Letters on flying saucers had swamped the mailroom. Reporters were hounding Purdy for more information. A hurried analysis of the first hundred letters showed a trend that later mail confirmed. Less than 5% of the readers ridiculed the article. Between 15 and 20% said they were not convinced. A few of these admitted they could not refute the evidence. About half the readers accepted the possibility. Most of these said they saw no reason why other planets should not be inhabited. The remainder, between 25 and 30 percent, said they were completely convinced. Even the disbelievers asked for more information. The intelligence level of the average letter was gratifyingly high. Comments came from scientists, engineers, airline and private pilots, college professors, officers of the armed services, and a wide variety of others, including far more women than True's readership usually includes. Several confidential tips had come in when I arrived. Most of them were from usually reputable sources. We were given evidence that Project Saucer was still in operation. Since its true code name was not Saucer, it could be continued without violating the Air Force press release. This same information was received from a dozen sources within the next two weeks. We were also told that there had been 722 cases instead of 375. Meantime, a number of astronomers had come out with statements, pro and con. One of these was Dr. Dean B. McLaughlin of the University of Michigan. No one knows what the saucers are as yet, Dr. McLaughlin said. They could be anything, and I'm willing to be convinced once the evidence is presented. Dr. Bart J. Bach of Harvard was on the fence. After all, he said, all sorts of things float around in space, but I'm not convinced the saucers are anything apart from the Earth. Another Harvard astronomer, Dr. Armin J. Deutsch, took an oblique poke at True and me. I don't think anyone, and that includes astronomers, knows enough about them to reach any conclusions. After this came the commitment of Dr. Carl F. von Weizsäcker that billions of stars may have planets and many could be inhabited. Within a few days, we had a huge stack of clippings, some supporting true, some deriding us. In the midst of all this, I read scientists' comments on Einstein's new unified field theory, which had been printed about the time true appeared on the stands. A discussion by Lincoln Barnett 
author of The Universe and Dr. Einstein, explained the basic premise that gravitation and electromagnetic force are inseparable. As I read it, I thought of what Reddell had said. If gravitation were a manifestation of electromagnetic force, was it possible that an advanced race had found a way, as unique as splitting the atom, to offset gravity and utilize that force? It was during these first tense days that we ran down the white sand story. This also ended another puzzle, the identity of the magazine that we had feared might scoop us. The race had been closer than we knew. The editors of a national magazine had learned of Commander McLaughlin and the sightings at White Sands. Two of the staff had carefully investigated the details. Convinced that the report was accurate, they had planned to run the story in an early issue. Since True had appeared first with the space travel story, the editors agreed to release the McLaughlin report for use in our March issue. The basic facts were in close agreement with what Reddell had told me. The ellipsoid-shaped saucer had been tracked at a height of 56 miles, its speed 5 miles per second. This was 18,000 miles per hour, even faster than Reddell had said. The strange craft, 105 feet in length, had climbed as swiftly as Marvin Miles had described it, an increase in altitude of about 25 miles in 10 seconds. Commander McLaughlin stated in his article that he was convinced the object was a spaceship from another planet, operated by animate, intelligent beings. He also described two small circular objects, about 20 inches in diameter, that streaked up beside a Navy high-altitude missile. After maneuvering around it for a moment, both disks accelerated, passed the fast-moving Navy missile, and disappeared. It is Commander McLaughlin's opinion that the saucers come from Mars. Pointing out that Mars was in a good position to see our surface on July 16, 1945, he believes that the flash of the first A-bomb at Almogadoro Base, a point not far from White Sands, was caught by powerful telescopes. During the first week of January, I appeared on We the People with Lieutenant George Gorman. When I saw Gorman, before rehearsals, he seemed oddly constrained. I had a feeling that he had been warned about talking freely. During rehearsals, he changed his lines in the script. When the writers argued over a point, Gorman told them, I can say only what was in my published report, nothing else. The day before the broadcast, a program official told me they had been told to include the Air Force denial in the script. That afternoon, I learned that the Air Force planned to monitor the broadcast. Meantime, an AP story carried a new Air Force announcement. Formerly, secret Project Saucer files would be opened to newsmen at the Pentagon, giving the answers to all the saucer reports. Just after my return to Washington, I saw an INS story that was widely printed. It was an interview with Major Jerry Boggs, a Project Saucer intelligence officer who served as liaison man between Wright Field and the Pentagon. Major Boggs had been asked for specific answers to the Mantell, Charles Witted, and Gorman cases. The answers he gave amazed me. I picked up the phone and called the Air Force Press Branch. After some delay, I was told that Major Boggs was being briefed for assignment to Germany. An interview would be almost impossible. He wasn't too busy to talk with INS, I said. All I want is 30 minutes.
Later, Jack Shea, a civilian press official I had known for some time, arranged the meeting. I was also to talk with General Sari Smith, Deputy Director for Air Information. Major Jesse Stay, a press branch officer, took me to General Smith's office for the interview. Both Jesse and Jack Shea, pleasant obliging chaps who had helped me in the past, tried earnestly to convince me the saucers didn't exist. Jesse was still trying when Major Boggs came in. Boggs looked to be in his twenties, younger than I had expected. He was trim, well-built, with a quietly alert face. Two rows of ribbons testify to his wartime service. When Jesse Stay introduced me, Boggs gave me a curiously searching look. It could have been merely his usual way of appraising people he met, but all through our talk I had a strong feeling that he was on his guard. I had written out some questions, but first I mentioned the INS story. Were you quoted correctly on the Mantell case, I asked? Yes, I was, Major Boggs looked at me squarely in the eye. Captain Mantell was chasing the planet Venus. It was so incredible that I shook my head. Major, Venus was practically invisible that day. We've checked with astronomers. Is that the official Air Force answer? Yes, it is, Boggs said. His eyes never left my face. I glanced across at General Sori Smith, then back at the Intelligence Major. That's a flat contradiction of Project Saucer's report. Last April, after they had checked for 15 months, they said positively it was not Venus. It was still unidentified. Boggs said in a slow, unruffled voice, they rechecked after that report. Why did they recheck after 15 months, I asked him. They must have gone over those figures long before that for errors. If my question annoyed him, Boggs gave no sign. There's no other possible answer, he said. Mantell was chasing Venus. All right, that's a really, really interesting chapter. A lot of cool behind-the-scenes stuff going on there. And that's also the end of Chapter 16. Stay tuned next time for Chapter 17. Um, Let's see what we got here. 47. So we're probably a little short of our normal episode length, but Agents Redacted and Agent Ether want to go get some lunch, and I have to cut it off here. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, check out the affiliate link in the description. This time around, we've got other books by Donald Kehoe. Turns out the dude wrote quite a lot of books, and uh, if you're interested in reading more of them, it's in the description. This is an affiliate link, and your purchase helps support the show, but doesn't cost you anything extra. Keep it strange.